having a a coping mechanism to mm-hmm. to see your way out of the situation mm-hmm. is 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 what you need like Welcome to Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. The goal of these interviews is to have candid, first-person conversations about the role of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in politics, the sciences, and beyond. And as you listen to these undocumented experiences, I hope we demonstrate the value of diversity and recognize the inequities that exist in the daily lives of minorities in this country. And on this episode, we'll be talking to Cecile Ahrens. Cecile Ahrens is a psychotherapist with over 20 years of experience working with people on a range of issues, including but not limited to depression, trauma, PTSD, anxiety, self-esteem, relationship and intimacy issues, grief and loss, divorce and separation, family issues, addiction, domestic violence, and relationship abuse, and workplace issues. She's a certified uh, employee assistance professional and licensed clinical social worker. Uh, she's also the director, the clinical director of Transcend Therapy, uh, based here in San Diego, and is passionate about fighting for mental health education and destigmatization. She also hosts a weekly podcast called Get Mental, where she discusses many of these issues. Uh, well, Cecile, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I've really been looking forward to talking with you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Me too. Uh, you know where there, there's a there. So uh, my audience again is is mostly uh, graduate students and scientists. And during this past year, uh, during this past year, scientists have been working very hard to address this pandemic, to do the research, to open labs, to educate the public on what are viruses, what are tests, what are tests, and really uh, uh, trying to put our scientific training forward uh, for our community and make ourselves very accessible, right? Because, um, you know, scientists, the way that we view disease is different from the way the general population views it because we understand disease. We know where we can go to get uh, uh, reliable information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, and me as a scientist, now we're one year into this thing <laughs> and a lot of us are coming up against a pandemic wall where we even even we are getting a little frustrated here that this thing is not over yet. And mm-hmm. while the vaccine is here finally, and there are a lot of people in the general population who are getting vaccinated, it, it it's not, it's not going to turn around on a dime. And mm-hmm. you know we still have a whole of 2021 to get through before we're at a point where the vaccine, uh, before we're at a point of herd immunity where we have enough people vaccinated to a point where the virus can't spread effectively anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing how we're, how we're one year into this, I've been thinking back um, this past year uh, during this pandemic and, and not only thinking about how fast everything went by, but thinking about the first day uh, when this pandemic was really coming down. Um, and I was in New York at the time. And uh, I remember I was in Brooklyn and uh this is when uh, uh, this is early March where and I was walking down, you know, just the street visiting some friends and my mom called me 
uh, and I picked up and she told me that Governor Cuomo, who's the governor of New York, uh, who's still the governor of New York, uh, uh, declared a state of emergency. Uh, and I paused on the sidewalk as chills and jolts rang through my body and realized that that's what fear felt like, mm-hmm. that the coronavirus was in New York. Um, and I started to question a lot of the normal activities that I usually do, um, such as, is it safe to take the subway? How do I get to work? Uh, will there be a rush at the grocery store? Where do I get tested? What is the virus? And uh, I, it was a sense of dread and despair in the air that reminded me of the days immediately after 9-11. And I was struck with grief and uncertainty. Um, but then I realized you know, my skills as a scientist will help me navigate this crisis uh, and, and my sense of determination renewed. Uh, but now that we're at this point, one year in, uh, for every moment that I put my mental health concerns away, this was a debt that I eventually would have to pay uh, and come to a reckoning when, with when everything calms down. And I really think about the trauma that we've all been through. Mm-hmm. And though um, and though we've all been in quarantine this, this amount of time, I haven't really felt alone because we've all been going through the same thing. Uh, so I think it's important on this episode that we have a, a mental health check-in for our listeners. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? What are you up to? Scientists, how are you feeling? Are you okay? I know on, on, on a normal basis, you already have a lot going on, especially as grad students, dealing with your PI, dealing with your lab, et cetera. Uh, but I know right now, maybe you're under a lot more strain. Maybe you haven't seen your lab members in a while. Maybe you haven't seen your family in a while. Maybe your thesis or dissertation has been delayed. Maybe you thought you weren't going to be graduating virtually, and it's not what your mom or dad imagined. So on this episode, uh, we want to help uh, our listeners with some basic mental health strategies that you can do to help cope with some of the trauma that we've all been through. Yeah. So, you know, I think you made a really important point that we've all been struggling with this, you know, in different ways and in in varying degrees. And there really is no one size fits all as far as like, what's the best way to cope, you know, but there are the basics, the basic foundation of mental health. Um, And, you know, this won't be a surprise to you, but obviously outside of therapy, sleep is really important, diet and exercise. And any, before I even um, delve into any kind of problem solving with my, my clients, I always look at those three things first, um, because it's going to be very hard for us to do any kind of deeper work if you don't have kind of, you know, adequate level of stability to process emotions and to, to you know, feel certain things. So... You know, I know as a student, I've been there, like sleep is usually just something you you don't think a lot of sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you're younger and you can kind of go on and not have to. You, you could basically live off, you know, five, six hours of sleep, right? So it's okay to do that from time to time. But when you're already stressed and anxious and depressed, you're actually really hurting yourself by not taking care of the basics. So those are the top three, looking at that, inviting you to kind of really evaluate what's going on with your sleep, diet, and exercise. Nature therapy 
is another thing I love to endorse. So, and you know, if you live in a, in a city like Pradeep and I do, San Diego, we're very lucky to have lots of different options here as far as nature therapy. It doesn't have to be like that you drive somewhere remote, you know, to get the benefits of nature therapy. And science is showing a lot of, um, of, uh, of evidence lately of how it really directly impacts our health how blood pressure, you know, decreases just by looking at something green for a few minutes. Um, so it could be a walk in the park. It could be just stepping outside if you have a patio and looking at the sky. You know, it could be um, going to a lake or a beach and just stepping away from any device. And I know, you know, the, the pandemic I mean, the, the digital, our digital devices has, have helped us tremendously during this pandemic, but it's not ideal. It, it's, it's, it helps us in certain ways, but it also can harm us, you know, video fatigue and just the multitasking, what that does to our brain and the constant visual stimulation. Again, Pradeep, you probably can, you know, attest to that. So really being mindful about um, your consumption. Um, of media and and anything on your device and nature therapy is something I really um, intentionally try to practice every day I try to go outside unless you know it's not weather permitting Um, your social environment it's really important to look at that what do I mean by that like who are the people around you what are your relationships like and I know the pandemic have has made a lot of people feel lonely and isolated you know um, because of the right the distancing um, requirements, but we can still reach out to loved ones. We can still you know be creative in the way we connect with people. It could be a letter. It doesn't always have to be a FaceTime thing, right? It could be you write someone a letter, you send them a card, or you meet in a socially distant way. There are safe ways to do that now, you know. Um, but it's really important to to. Puts, create some time for that kind of socialization because we're wired to connect and relate. And even though you might think you're connecting, right, if you're on social media and you're emailing people, that's not the same as connecting in person, in the flesh. Um, having fun, playing, whatever that looks like for you, it's important, again, to set time for that. Unplugging from your devices and just being selective about the kinds of things you're watching and listening to, because all of that has a mental health impact. Yeah, and and you know it's it's really uh it really wasn't until I moved here that I re- that I realized what a pleasure it is to wake up every day to sunshine and clear skies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I believe for a long time that anxiety and depression in graduate students is worsening. Uh, yeah. that the that the health of the next generation of researchers needs systemic change uh, mm-hmm. to research cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, a survey by Nature in 2017 found that 29% of graduate students in the sciences thought their mental health was a concern, with many yeah. of them see, seeking help for anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this number went up in 2019 to 36%, and I'm sure it's higher now in 2021. Uh, with many students reporting bullying or harassment or discrimination. And could universities take more effective action? Sure. Are they? Not enough, uh, in my opinion. 
mm-hmm. uh, and, and others have, have reported. Uh, and while many students report being satisfied with their programs, some are stressed to a point of ill health. Um, and, and career success in the sciences is gauged by many you know, knobs from mm-hmm. publications to citations to funding to contributions to conferences, impact of their research on the economy and the environment. Hitting all these notes is imperative to land a great early career job in the sciences. And moreover, um, when a student's supervisor or their PI or their research mentor is also the judge of their success or failure, uh, it's it's no surprise that many students feel unable to open up about their vulnerabilities or mental health concerns to their their supervisor who monitors their research over the course of three, four, five years. Um, and at worst, um, this relationship can foster, you know, toxic power dynamics where a student feels powerless to speak out uh, against professors uh, who create toxic work environments, or uh, and even resulting in cases of, um, you know, exploitation uh, in, in 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 certain ways. Um, and we and we know that doctoral students are, you know, uh, unpaid and overworked. And this is why currently Columbia's grad students are on strike <laughs> right now. And unfortunately, often um, we often learn of this until it's too late. Yeah. Uh, just on March 18th, two days ago, uh, there's a paper that came out of the New England Journal of Medicine uh, where, it, uh, it, where it talks about a med student that, who was found dead after jumping out his apartment window. Oh uh, and, and each... Yeah, and and it was written from the perspective of the uh, of the med student supervisor, where one day uh, the student just didn't show up for work, wasn't picking up their phone calls, wasn't uh, 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 was w- didn't check in with security, uh, just out of the blue didn't show up, and so the supervisor and and the and the med med student leader went to the student's apartment, knocked on the door, door didn't open, they called the super to open the door for them. And they looked out the window, and there he was. Uh, and nobody suspected that this 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 human being was having uh, um, uh, struggles. Uh, str- struggles. And yeah. e- and every year, you know, approximately three hundred physicians in the United States die by suicide. And med right. students and residents are particularly at risk because um, you're facing new professional responsibilities with the highest possible stakes and deep uncertainty about your own abilities, constant sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. isolation from family and friends, doom scrolling on social media. So what 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 can be done to to prevent this? And 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 oftentimes when when it's when when it's too late and someone has hurt themselves, we we ask ourselves what what did we miss? What what went wrong? What can we have done differently? To show our to show our engagement with with the people around us, so so let's do a check in. What, what what can we do to check in on the people around us? To check in on yourself, so that we're not we're not alone um, in, in in this time. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is such a um, a big question. You know, you hit on so many different parts of the problem. I mean, first of all, there needs to be true prevention <laughs> will require a, a, an, an overhaul of the system, a complete redo of the system, because 
our education system is based on this um, kind of very unhealthy, dysfunctional dynamic. You know, students are often overworked and the expectations and the competition, you know, creates a lot of stress and it's unhealthy um, most of the time. And it really does, um, you know, for people who are already vulnerable mental health wise, meaning if you're already coming in, going into grad school with all these insecurities and issues and traumas and, you know, issues from un unknown to you, unconscious to you, and you, you're placed in an environment that is so stressful and um, really uh, judges your worth and your value based on your grades and academic mm -hmm. performance, you are really, that person can be really vulnerable to all sorts of mental health issues and disorders to the point of suicide. That would be the worst, right? The worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. I think our education system needs to have some kind of balance um, between academic health and emotional and mental health. And it needs to start as well, you know, at, a, at, at, at an early age in grade school. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just not where we are. We're still very kind of, we still value, you know, one one form of intelligence, right? And we're just not at that level of consciousness yet, Pradeep, you know, but that's like, that's the answer is like, we need to reset and really reevaluate what are we really teaching our students uh, outside of academic, you know, knowledge and success. Do we care about them as a whole person? Or are we just, you know, just, we just lost our focus here and we're just focused on kind of that particular you know, concentration or industry, right? Like mental health is just something that we have not conceptualized as a necessary component to health and happiness, you know? Um, so it starts with education. It starts with leaders in the school system being willing to, you know, push for more mental health um, support and educating teachers to, um, uh, recognize it in students, you know, um, the warning signs, the early warning signs. Mm. And we need to reevaluate the kinds of, um, what is it? The, the amount of, of courses that we're requiring people to take at a very short amount of time. Right. Like it, it's kind of like when you say reimagine, you know, uh, the police, right? The the way we we run our law enforcement in this country, it's it's kind of the same spirit that I'm talking about here. We need to reimagine how we construct and facilitate the learning, you know, the higher education, the the, the learning process in our country. And yeah, what are you, you are going to have? Like we are a very fortunate country in that we have a lot of excellent, you know, um, very intelligent, innovative individuals because of our education system in part, but what's the price that they have to pay to get that? Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it's always worth it. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, yes, a, a complete overall of the mental health, uh, you know, education uh, and education is a hashtag defund higher ed or something like that. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, 
Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also a lot of pressure, uh, when your entire career hinges on the opinion of one person or a panel of people or, or a panel of people, you know, you spent, you spent four or five years working on great research to present it against a panel of experts. And, you know, that's not even, uh, that's not even, uh, talking about this sort of demographics of this panel, usually it's straight white males, uh, who are these professors who are, uh, who are judging your work. Oftentimes it's, you know, a person of color who, who just entered the sciences for the first time and now has to come to grips with the fact that they may be the only brown person in their class, maybe the only black person in their class. Maybe there's not a single professor that looks like you is yet another layer of, I guess, imposter syndrome where you are now in this space, this really elite education space but you're the only one that looks like you do belong there so i think second second guess your own uh mental ability um and when your entire career sort of hinges on the opinion of one person you do what you have to do to to make that person happy in in 2016 i think there was a at columbia there was a professor named uh, thomas jessel and thomas jessel at the time he was the leader of the Calvary Institute, which was a really big neuroscience institute out of Columbia in New York, is one of the founders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that for years, and he, not only was he a founder, he was a, he was he was pumping out papers like he he had funding, papers, everything. But wow. it, but it, but um, it it was found out that for years he was he was having re- like relations with his students on the low. Uh, and it, consensual or not, uh, well, consensual, but the, that that power dynamic is is what allowed for that kind of relationship to to manifest. And mm-hmm. once the university found out, and and he lost his teaching positions, and he eventually lost tenure. Now he's he he died. Like he had he had a he had some kind of like brain uh, stroke or something. Mm-hmm. Um, all that his entire lab was his lab was maybe like 20 30 people and these are our students and postdocs and technicians and whatever were all disbanded so they all had to either start over go to a different lab um uh find a different job <laughs> and 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 start over because this one guy made a mistake uh more more than a mistake he abuses power mm-hmm. uh and and when your entire career hinges on on making sure this one person is happy just uh, it, it, this creates a toxic a toxic power dynamic. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um. W- would it be possible you can expand on what are the signs of a toxic power dynamic that maybe students can watch for? Uh. And beyond that, um. What steps can one take to, uh, to not only recognize but address uh, a toxic power dynamic in in the workplace, or with a research mentor or beyond. So, you know, a toxic relationship, whether it's personal or professional, is essentially about two things, power and control. So anytime you start to feel that, ah, I don't feel safe asserting myself, I don't feel safe, you know, speaking up, or I'm feeling this kind of... um, pressure that I can't put my finger on, or I feel uncomfortable around this person's presence. If it's, it's, if it's covert, that's where it's confusing for people. So anytime you feel that kind of, oh, I just don't feel comfortable around this guy. There's just something, you know, this person, there's just something 
I can't put my finger on, but it's just this funny feeling I'm getting. Trust that. You know, I'm not saying make a huge conclusion yet about the person without enough data, but trust it. Just be open to the possibility that your instincts are telling you something's wrong. Um, if there are overt signs, you know, and this person is, you know, like, like that example that you shared, sexually exploiting you and um, manipulating you, guilt tripping you, you know, making you feel like um, you don't have much of a choice, taking advantage of your vulnerability, exploiting that. Hmm. That's absolutely not okay. And hopefully, hopefully you will feel safe enough to tell somebody um, and hopefully you'll get the advice to report it to the proper, you know, people in your agency or, or um, university so that they can do something about it. I mean, you know, at universities have policies around these things. I, I mean, I don't know kind of how much they enforce it and what they do with these complaints, but it's there for a reason. Those policies are created for a reason. And hopefully you'll feel empowered to report it. But if you don't want to report it, especially in cases of sexual assault, um, a lot of times people underreport that stuff or they report it later on. That's okay, right? Like, it, it, I get it, you know, but at least talk to somebody about it, um, particularly a therapist, who so that we can help you unpack that, process that, validate your experience, kind of stop the bleeding, so to speak, so that you can start to really, you know, put that perspective put that experience into perspective and help you set some boundaries, help you figure out what your options are. You know, when you're in a toxic power dynamic, you do start to believe that you don't have a lot of choice and you hmm. do start to believe that you're stuck there because that's the nature of the dynamic. They want you to feel that way. They want you to feel dependent on them. That's, that's part of what perpetuates it. That's part of what keeps it going is the more dependent you are on them, then the more power and control they can have over you, you know? And what, what would you say are some key pillars, I guess, uh, that would make one dependent on another? Uh, would it be control over finances, control over reputation, control over... Perceived control over your future, right? Or actual control over your future. If you're relying on this person, you know to pretty much give give you the green light that's huge control over your your psyche and your future income your future opportunities it's huge yeah um and uh oftentimes sometimes you're worth uh, yeah. right mm -hmm. if, if you are one of those people that i described earlier on if you're already entered this space with vulnerabilities and feelings of inadequacy, you, you know, it could just, that can get reinforced by these kinds of dynamics. Yeah. Um, so uh, oftentimes, um, yeah, I, I, I had mentioned that uh, scientists uh, often uh, don't address their, their own mental health concerns because mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're putting forward the they're putting forward their, their future, right? They're putting forward, what do I have to do to pass my qualifying exams, to 
graduate, to get this funding, to publish, to do whatever, they're、mm-hmm. thinking maybe like、uh, one or two years in the future, one or two years ahead. What do I have to do right now to get to that point? And oftentimes, the the、um, mental health concerns that are taking place in the moment get you know put on the back burner, where、right. they pa- where they pack it away, think、mm-hmm. about it later. Uh, focus on their、uh, experiments. There's, 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 there's an off. There's, there's a,、uh, there's often a sort of separation about your personal feelings、uh, as it relates to the research and、yeah. the research itself, which is you know numbers and statistics and experiments and hypotheses, right?、Uh, and and that your feelings and 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 the outcome of your experiments should be two separate things.、Uh, mm-hmm. But sometimes、um, when your entire career is <laughs> hinging on positive results. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to keep those things separate because this is this is your literal future that you that is that is dependent on on these results and so、right. when it when it comes time to you know come face to face with these issues uh, uh, and some students also have cultural barriers、uh, when it comes to mental health how can we destigmatize uh, a, a students、uh, a students who feel like mental health Is is not the right is 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 not going to help them, or that it's, or that met, or that addressing your mental health is not、uh, directly related to passing your 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 graduate program, or perhaps no one else in your program is is caring about their mental health. What what are some steps that we can take with our students to help to help destigmatize、um, seeing a therapist or seeing a counselor or or looking in the mirror. Uh, and addressing some of these、uh, mental health concerns, what what are some steps we can take to help de- destigmatize、uh, seeing a therapist or, or、um, well, I think it、about. starts with these kinds of conversations, you know,、um, and sending the message out there in our own way, right, with the power and resources that we have. You and I are doing that, you know, in our kind of、uh, as our way, right, to destigmatize it. But but there needs to be a culture shift. So it's a multi-layered, you know, kind of process. The culture needs to change for scientists, and needs to start at the top, kind of like the way it happened with mili- the military、um, system. That you know, pe- people must educators need to recognize the science. They should encourage getting help. They should pull people aside if they see red flags. They should know where to refer people to. And they should, you know,、um, really normalize these conversations、um, in 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 the school system. And also, I think part of the problem, as you were describing, kind of the way scientists operate, is you guys have been, in a way, socialized or conditioned to keep that separation between your feelings and your Your mind, so to speak, or your brain. Yeah, and, yeah. And the thing is, that's great when you're doing research and 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 necessary, but not when you're living your life. Okay, so let me let me break that down. Meaning, you have to be able to do that and switch it off because if you do that as a lifestyle, it's very damaging to you as a human being. You know. Um, it's not about separation; it's about integration.、Hmm. Okay, you need to separate and be objective when you are talking. You know, in in kind of in a research environment, but outside of that, 
you know, it's okay and, and necessary, I would argue, that you learn ways to attend to your emotional life because they go hand in hand. That's actually going to enhance your um, your ability as a scientist is if you're able to be, you know, calm and um, have proper perspectives on what's happening in your life, if you're coping you know, in a healthy way, that's only going to help you and your, your career, you know, and this is what I was talking about pretty earlier on that we have not conceptualized mental health as a critical part to overall health and happiness. And it is emotional intelligence is one of the key things um, for success. You know, it's not just about the sciences and, and, you know, kind of your intellectual powers. It's your emotional health is so key. And sometimes I would say that's the thing that would anchor you the more during tough times, during dark times. You know, it's not your your smarts necessarily that's going to save you. It's your it's your emotional health. It's your mindset. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I think when you're, it sounds like when you're faced in an when you're faced with an unreasonable scenario that's detrimental to your mental health, having a a coping mechanism to mm-hmm. to see your way out of the situation mm-hmm. is 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 what you need. Like like for example, um, uh, the, the, this past few years, um, you know, it, it it's been frustrating to uh, you know, have conversations with with friends and colleagues who, um, who, uh, you know, I, I don't like to get too political on this podcast, but with friends and colleagues who, you know, supported the former president in really staunch and oftentimes, uh, uh aggressive ways. And early on, I, I was, you know, I was a very sort of, I was the type of person that wanted to have, com- have these conversations with, with, individuals that voted for the former president and try to break down why it's not okay to call the coronavirus the kung flu why that's not okay mm-hmm. why you should believe science for this this and this reason why here here's how the vaccine works and here's here's how scientific research works uh here is the reason why we have you know why we have intergenerational inequality in the united states and having Mm -hmm. these conversations are so exhausting because you have to um almost like educate someone else on what uh, on decades of research and decades of of news and personal experiences just to kind of bring them up to speed and for me it got to a point where i was like you know what I'm just not going to waste my time trying to convince this person that the sky is blue. And that was my uh, sort of coping mechanism. That was my out where I'm like, I don't care enough about this person to, to, to take the time out of my day to try to let them know why voting is important and why vaccines work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've been using vaccines for almost 300 years our immune system is well studied. It's 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 a it's a system that's used to to create therapies for all kinds of conditions. But I ain't got time to sit here for two hours to teach you about that, man. So and this and and, and that was sort of my out. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, because you have to be, you want to be selective, right? Like that's part of taking care of yourself, talking about coping skills, is recognizing kind of like the conversations and the things you're going to engage in and the things you're not, you know? You don't have to, right? Like if you're hitting a wall with somebody, maybe the best thing to do is to just acknowledge that and take a step back and choose not to engage, you know? Um, you got to have those kind of boundaries. So, and kind of, yeah, being selective. And if you're a grad student and you're really busy and, you know, you're kind of on a time crunch all the time, even more so that you want to be really smart with your time. However, I would say that hopefully you will also carve out time for some of these things we talked about earlier on, for nature, for fun, for unplugging, you know, for self-care. Even if it's 15 minutes, you know, even if it's five minutes of just not doing anything and giving your mind a break, whatever you can do, all those things, all those little things can make a difference. The cumulative effects of those little things can make a difference. Oftentimes when people are super stressed, right? That's, that's the last thing they think they want to do is I don't have time for that. Well, you, you can make time and I would really invite you to try it out because you're, you'll actually feel better usually and be more creative and mentally productive. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, uh, let me sort of take this time to uh, to transition to uh, to, uh, 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 to to the next topic, which is yeah. you know why is it important to grieve? Uh, and uh, I realize that's also a big question. Uh, but you know, I looked at I looked at the numbers uh, last night, and we're 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 pushing five hundred and fifty thousand people gone over this past year, and you know this affects everybody's lives. And and we all know somebody, or, or 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 know somebody who knows somebody who has been going through, who's been going through some stuff, and has been faced with mortality of their friends or family or grandparents. Have been concerned that was I the one that that brought the virus into the family? Was mm-hmm. I the one that that uh, you know uh, pa- passed it on when I hugged my grandma? or or wore a mask for five minutes when I was less than six feet away from somebody. Um, mm-hmm. All this panic and concern and suspicion about what are normal activities. Uh, and when, when, and I, I can't think of a time in, in my lifetime, uh, and, and I'm 29 now, where I've been around so much grief in a, such a short period of time. Maybe, maybe 9-11 when I was in New York. But five hundred fifty thousand is is a tall is a tall number. So, you know, my question is uh, to to people out there who aren't who who are um, sort of packing away this grief and focusing on their job or focusing on the science, especially students. Uh, I had mentioned that they separate the emotional, the, their their emotional their, their feelings, their personal feelings from the scientific research. Mm-hmm. In packing away those emotional feelings, the, the, those emotions, you're also packing away the grief and you're packing away the sadness and you. And you're not taking the time to acknowledge all that's been lost. So, um, your existence. So yeah, and and so my so my question is, um, you know, why why is it important to to face to face it to face that grief, and why is it important to grieve? Why why is it healthy to sit there and just and just and just cry sometimes and just cry <laughs> about 
uh, what you've been through and, and just let it out. Why, why is it important that to, 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 to face yeah. the grief and, and so, and soak it up? Not only is it deeply human to experience grief and loss, it's also deeply healing to feel it, you know, feeling it in a manageable way. That's my caveat. A lot of times when we avoid feeling things, it's because we don't trust ourselves yet to be able to handle the pain and all the feelings that are going to come up that we don't have control over. So not feeling it, avoiding it, suppressing it is a coping mechanism, right? And there's a time and place for that, especially if you're in crisis and you're really trying to meet a deadline, you know, that's totally fine, but it's not a long-term strategy. It's important to feel the feelings of loss because it's important to process those feelings so you can actually start to integrate that experience and, and move through it, through it in a healthier way so that you can finally, you know, kind of not put it to rest, but get to a point where it's no longer an open wound, but it's a scar. That's kind of the best analogy I can give you. Like when we work through our difficult feelings, it's not just for the sheer pleasure of feeling pain and discomfort. It is, you know, so that not only is it really healing for our system, um, because that's part of what helps our nervous system, you know, function properly is if we are feeling these things, believe it or not. Um, and to get to a point of stability again, Hmm. you know, and there's no shortcut. There's no way to go around that. It is necessary. You have to, you know, feel it to heal it. Feel it to heal it. Yeah. That, 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 that's uh, quite a fine statement there. Um, and, uh, to, to follow, to follow up with that, um, you know, when we're faced with mortality from COVID, uh, for many people, this is the first time they're 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 feeling that mortality is something that ex- that that exists. I mean, when you're yeah. in your early twenties, teens, or even just in your twenties, you feel like you, nothing's ever going to happen to you. Like mortality's mortality is yeah. not something that's on your mind when you're in your early twenties yeah. because. You're young, you're fit, you're healthy, and the world is yours. But then, right. but then a pandemic rolls through, and you're faced with with death. Death isn't close by. Mm-hmm. How, how, when we were faced with mortality, um, how do we prioritize? Uh, you know, the time we the time we have. How do we how do we uh, cope with what with our own mortality in this era of COVID and um, understand that and not go to a dark place when we think about mortality? So I think that's a great question Um, because it's often, like you said, something that we think about later in life versus earlier in life. So the, the simple answer is practicing presence, but that's hard to do. But that is the simple answer and the true answer. So, you know, you hear about mindfulness and all of these kinds of um, uh, mindfulness-based interventions and meditative practices, whatever works for you, because it's not one size fits all when it comes to mindfulness, 
the idea is to just start exploring the ways that you can be more present with your loved ones. Mm. Okay? Whether that's quality time, you know, whether that's doing kind of a favorite activity with your friend or just holding space for them. Um, I don't know if your audience is, you know, really going to relate to what I'm saying here, but like holding space, emotional space, right? Like if somebody's talking and it sounds like they're going through some difficult times, listen, mm. you know, um, validate what they're feeling or just say, I get it, man. I understand. Or if you don't know what to say, you can say, I'm so sorry you're going through that. I don't know how to help you. Is there anything I can do? Like you don't have to have the answers. You know, but we can, you can start to be more present with your loved ones. And that's how you can, that's an antidote to loss because loss is inevitable. It is the single most, you know, um, assured thing, right? Death and taxes. I think uh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Like, but it is, you know, for, for the younger generation, COVID-19 has kind of, arrested arrested you developmentally so to speak and that mm. you're not supposed to be thinking about these things right now you know you you it is developmentally appropriate for you to to think about your future as bright and that you are you know the, the world is your oyster and there are all these possibilities and COVID-19 put a damper on that for young people yeah you know yeah. and it is what it is. It's just part of kind of our generation's suffering, right? And all we can do is rise to the occasion. And how do you do that? And as a therapist, I really think it's presence. Hopefully that's what COVID helped us realize that outside of our careers and all these things, you know, we attach to at the end of the day, like we need each other. And it's, it, it, it's, and it's great that you mentioned that, our our young people have have a, have arrested development because mm-hmm. because of what we're living in. They're they're, they're feeling premature uh, feelings of mortality when they're supposed to be yeah. feeling you know like Superman and super superwomen pumped about their future, right? Yeah, and uh, a YouGov poll uh, recently indicated that twenty three percent of eighteen to twenty four year olds in the United States said that they sought counseling during the pandemic which was an increase from 13% in the same population um, uh, uh, last year. Uh, and uh, and meanwhile, some therapists yeah. report that... Yeah, At yeah. least they're reaching out for help, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 um, and many therapists report that switching to te- teletherapy during a pandemic has increased client attendance and their willingness to open up. So my mm-hmm. question to you is, uh, you know, are we in a mental health crisis? And, and, and how's it looking, you know, on the ground in your clinic or in your colleague's clinic, are you seeing more people? Uh, are there, are there a lot of young people showing up and, and is this indicative of a mental health crisis that we're currently reckoning with? 100%. Hmm. I think we were already in a, in a, in a crisis before COVID-19 hit. Um, but this definitely put us over the edge. Hmm. You know, um, younger, at least for me, I can speak about the people that are reaching out um, to us. There's a lot of younger folks reaching out 
And I love that. I'm, I mean, yes, it's, it's horrible that we are, you know, having more mental health issues, but I'm also so, um, comforted by the fact that young people are reaching out because now there's an opportunity to really break some of these patterns earlier on in the life cycle. Mm. You know, I have people in their sixties and their seventies, Pradeep, dealing with trauma when they were six or seven. Oh my. You know, yeah. like that stuff doesn't leave you. I really want your your listeners to get that like time does not heal all wounds. I wish that were true, but it just isn't, you know, and the deeper some of these wounds are, the grief and the loss, all this unprocessed stuff, you can tuck them away, but they're going to play out in other ways, you know. And so when young people call the office and and they're wanting to get some help, you know, I'm just like inside my heart is just like, good for you. Yeah, let's do this. Let's get you let's get you some real coping skills to really kind of equip you, you know, for 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 a majority of your adulthood, right? Um so yes, we are in a mental health crisis. Unfortunately, the World Health Organization is already uh predicting that if they haven't already. Um and it's just not in our country, it's across the globe. Oh my. And um, Suicide rates have risen, as you know, mm. and it's not just in the U.S. I was talking to a grad student, actually, uh, a couple of months ago, and she's from Japan, and she was studying psychology, and that she was here, um, as you know, she's here to study, and she was just telling me some anecdotal stuff about Japan that I didn't know about, and how the suicide rates have risen, oh like, significantly for the men in Japan because of the cultural kind of expectation to provide and to do, you know, to do all these things. And because of the, the huge economic losses that a lot of uh, the people suffered over there, the suicide rates for men just spiked. So we are in a crisis, but hopefully, you know, we're going to be able to also figure it out just like we did the vaccine because that's always been who we are. I want to give your listeners some hope, you know, that there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of people in the mental health community that are trying to spread the word and raise mental health awareness. And, you know, it's probably the best time at, that it's ever been as far as mental health education. We're not out of the woods you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but I think the collective consciousness is slowly changing and I'm hoping that, you know, uh, policies will follow and that the government will start figuring out, you know, how to get better, um, how to give people better access to mental health care. I think that's going to be the direction because it's going to be inevitably um, inevitable to us. It's going to be glaringly obvious that we need some kind of mental health reform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's my, that's my personal prediction. Yeah. Um, Maybe a, uh, (laughs) president Nixon created the EPA, the environmental protection agency. Maybe we need like a, like a a mental health protection agency or something. Um, so Mm -hmm. in, in these last few minutes, uh, I want to talk about, um, uh, you uh, as a person and 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 what you're working on 
Um, I, I know that you, uh, uh, you know, you, you believe that we, we should revitalize the uh, uh, mental health uh, system in this country through a multidimensional approach. And I know that you're also working on a, uh, 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 working through a nonprofit called uh, uh, Papillon. So would it be possible you can uh, let us know what it's about and, 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 and what you're working on? Sure. So I have a private practice, like you, like you mentioned, it's called Transcend Therapy, and that's where we provide direct care um, to individuals and families and, um, you know, providing individual couples, family and group counseling. And then I also have a Get Mental podcast, and that's kind of like a public service type thing that that is fun for me to do, talking about all things mental health. And just, you know, normalizing these conversations and making the information relatable and easily digestible for folks. Um, and then there's Papillon. That's the nonprofit that I started last year. We're in the middle of a launch right now. And that project came out of my passion and frustration with our with changing our current um, mental health service delivery model. So mental health um, care has been largely modeled um, from the medical system of care, where we're very mm -hmm. kind of diagnostic, and I'm not saying that's not important, but I think we need to shift some of our focus, you know, and we're very much, um, you know, uh, very kind of insurance-driven because insurance is a big part of the healthcare system in the States. So an insurance dictates a certain way that you do mental health care, if that makes sense. But if you're an out-of-pocket patient, we have more clinical freedom um, because we don't have the, the same kinds of regulations we have to abide by in a way that, from, that are... Um, expected of us from the insurance companies. So basically Papillon, the main the main way that we hope that it's going to be different from traditional, you know, mental health organizations, private or nonprofit, is we are not going to uh, wait for you to have a diagnosis, so to speak, in order to be able to bill, you know, uh, a funding entity. So it's kind of complicated, but that's that's the the one of the big goals is that even if you don't technically have a mental health disorder, which by the way I don't like those words either. We need to mm. change some of the language, right? Mm -hmm. Like in medicine, you don't have cancer disorder, you don't have epilepsy <laughs> disorder. There's no disorder in any mm -hmm. of the diagnoses, but in mental health, we're calling it a disorder, and so mm. that alone is stigmatizing, mm. Mm. right? Mm. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we don't want to wait until somebody has a meets criteria for a clinical diagnosis to be able to help them. We don't want to have to, to justify why we need to keep working with them if they don't have a diagnosis, because right now with insurance companies, that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, why do you continue seeing this patient if you don't have a diagnosis? Well, because we, they have enough problems and we, why should we wait till they're sick enough? Right? Like that's not preventive, you know? And so hopefully with um, with this kind of new innovative way of thinking, and if we can get funding for it, we could help more people earlier on in the pain cycle, right? Mm -hmm. We could help people who are experiencing life issues, 
you know, like your your mom died and maybe, you know, you're, you're just kind of a person who is all about personal growth and self-reflection. Why can't we help those kind of people? That's mm-hmm. a great thing, right? Mm-hmm. But in the current model, that's a luxury. Like, no, they're not sick. Why should you help them? Sick in terms of they're not meeting criteria for a diagnosis, right? But mental health is not the same as medical, mm-hmm. you know, issues. Mental health usually is like, it's a very different kind of, of therapy or treatment. And we, we can't think about it in terms of just symptoms and, and results, you know, of course, results are always part of the equation, but the symptoms doesn't show mental health symptoms don't always present in the same kind of black and white way that medical symptoms present. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's just thinking about the way we think about it. And then a lot of times Nonprofits only serve the low, the the poorest of the poor, right? And the low socioeconomic status folks. Well, with Papillon, our goal is to also serve middle class people Mm. because middle income earners are often the forgotten ones Mm. because they don't earn enough, but they don't, they earn too much Mm. to get proper benefits, but that they don't earn enough to actually be able to afford proper care. So that's the other piece we're going to try to, um, you know, start. And then the, the, the bigger piece as well, there's a few different things, but the last one I want to mention is, you know, how you have a primary care doctor, mm-hmm. then you get a dentist at some point in your life, right? Mm-hmm. And you're just expected to do these annuals as part of overall health and wellness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then if you have, I don't know, some eye problems, you'll get an optometrist or if you have other issues, you might get other specialists in your kind of your medical team, but we don't have mental health in there as like a given. Mm. So my vision is to have like the same way you would have a primary care provider. Papillon would like to offer a primary mental health provider for each client. So that even if they're not in therapy anymore, we will just check in and reach out to you after a year, kind of like you would for an annual exam and say, hey, how are you doing? Let's come in. Let's talk. Let's just kind of figure out where you're at. And if there's, you know, no need to continue right with therapy, great. But we're, someone's checking in with you on a consistent basis, the way a doctor would about your health and following you across the lifespan. That, that I think is a uh, that I think would in itself, annual checkups in the same way, or even six months checkups in the same way you would visit a dentist or optometrist, that alone, yeah. I think, would do wonders for the mental health in our country. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, you heard it here. It's and, uh, don't steal my ideas. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, well, how would people uh, get in touch with you if they wanted to follow up about Papillon or or maybe follow up with, with anything they heard uh, on this episode? Well, how would yeah. they follow up you with, on Instagram or email? Thank you so much. I mean, there's a few ways to follow us. Uh, we have a Get Mental Facebook group that I do uh, a face a Transformation Tuesday. Um, that's what it's called. Every Tuesday, I get on there and talk about a mental health topic. Um, and then there's also uh, Instagram, Transcend Therapy Inc. and Get Mental. We have two different accounts. Um, the one is for the podcast and Transcend Therapy is for the private practice. But we have really good information out there. We try to um, you know, uh, share with people. And then you could email me directly uh, at Cecile, C-E-C-I-L-L-E at transcendtherapy.org. Cecile at transcendtherapy.org. 
We also have um, a couple of websites, the transcendtherapyca.com. If you want to learn more about our private practice, if you're in San Diego and you're needing some support, um, we're doing telehealth right now, but we're hoping to also start offering in-person sessions again in May. We have two offices, one on Park Boulevard and University Heights, and one on Navajo Road by Cows Mountain. Mm. So um, that's where you can get information about the practice. And then if you just want to get information about me um, in general, I have a website called CecileAarons.com, C-E-C-I-L-L-E-A-H-R-E-N-S, CecileAarons.com. And that's kind of a one-stop shop for everything that we're doing, you know, all the all the projects I'm involved in. Follow Cecile. Uh, and I'll just add one thing for the audience. If you know someone who's having thoughts of suicide or, um, or, or, or someone you're concerned for or you yourself uh, you know, need someone to talk to, uh, you know, call, call, call the suicide prevention hotline. The national suicide prevention hotline is available 24 hours a day at 800-273-8255. Uh, and during a crisis, you know, people who are hard of hearing, uh, can call 800-799-4889, uh, for anyone out there who's having thoughts of suicide, please give them a call. And if I can also um, piggyback on that, if you're in San Diego and you are, you know, having thoughts of hurting yourself or you just feel like you're in crisis or it's the middle of the night and you're just having all sorts of difficulties, you can call this number. This is the San Diego Access and Crisis Line. They're open 24-7, 365 days a year. It's 888-724-7240, 888-724-7240. And again, you don't have to be suicidal per se. You could just be just having a difficult time. And there are licensed therapists available all day long, all year long. And if you just need information as well about like, you know, groups or COVID testing or uh, uh, social service type needs, like, you know, you're needing help with, I don't know, a shelter or food stamps or anything you can think of, they will have some kind of information on it, basically. Thank you so. for sharing that, Cecile. And yeah, you're welcome. With that. I'm so happy uh, that we had this conversation and there's so many, uh, uh, this entire episode I'm sure will be very useful for scientists out there or even the public in general uh, who are going through hard times. Uh, mm -hmm. And I hope that anybody who's listening ends up following up with you uh, to, to address some of these concerns. So with that, thank you so much Cecile for being here. Uh, and I'm so thankful that you took the time to, uh, to, to come talk to me today. You're very welcome, Pradeep. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the work that you do and for caring about this issue. You know, I really appreciate uh, partnering with you because this is what it takes, you know, the community. We need to help each other. So keep up the great cause. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice. If you want to keep up with the podcast, feel free to follow it at deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on Instagram for all the updates. I would love to hear from you. If you have a cool idea for a future episode or you yourself want to be featured, email me at deepthoughtsinterview at gmail.com. Follow Instagram for updates. Give this podcast five stars or whatever platform you're listening on, and I'll talk to you next time. Peace.